0: In November 2014, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium in partnership with the Hampton Roads Naval Museum and the Old Dominion University Department of History. The following is a lecture by one of the symposium presenters, Dr. Holger Herwig. Dr. Herwig is the author of numerous books, including The Marne, 1914, and his lecture focused on the importance of the Battle of the Marne and its legacy a hundred years later. As Dr. Herwig contends, without the Marne, no Lenin, no Stalin, no Hitler. The story that I tell in this begins with a Lieutenant Albert Meyer of the 5th Baden Mounted Jaeger Regiment, who on 2 August 1914, before war had even been declared between France and Germany, led a patrol along the southern ridge southeast of Belfort on the Vosges Mountains, where 1,972 years earlier, Julius Caesar had advanced against a German force under Ariovistus. Suddenly, French guards of the 44th Infantry Regiment appeared. Meyer charged. He struck the first Frenchman over the head with his broadsword, Another Jäger drove his lance into the chest of a second, yet another shot a third. The remaining French soldiers took cover in a ditch, opened fire. Meyer tumbled from the saddle, dead. And in this unexpected encounter, the 22-year-old Jäger became the first German soldier killed in what, ironically and collectively, would be called the Battle of of the Marne, which raged from the Swiss border to the Channel. I have argued, as you've just heard, this is the area of the Vosges, that the Marne was the most decisive battle of this war. There is our favorite friend in one of his many incredible outfits, William II. Germany failed at the Marne, as you just heard, and the promise of the Schlieffen Plan was gone. And yes, for all you Terrence Zuber fans, there was a Schlieffen Plan. It exists. What is so incredible about the Marne, and we've heard this also earlier on, is the scale. Between 5 and 11 September 1914, The two sides committed nearly 2 million men with 6,000 guns to a front just 200 kilometers wide. The technology of the killing was also unprecedented. Rapid small arms fire, machine guns, hand grenades, heavy artillery howitzers made the killing ground lethal. The casualties suffered by both sides were unimaginable to pre-war planners. 200,000 men per side in the hilly battle of the frontiers in August, another 200,000 along the chalky plains of the Marne in September. By comparison, British casualties were 1,701. No other year of the war compared to its first five months in terms of death, the chapel of the French military college at Saint-Cyr had only a single entry for its dead for the first year of the war, quote, the class of 1914, that is before Hitler destroyed it. The immediate impact of the Marne, I argue, was stunning. As you've heard, the great assault on Paris had been halted, the enemy driven behind the Aisne River, France spared in 1871. And as you also know, the long-term repercussions were tragic. The Marne ushered in four more years of what the future German military historian, Gerhard Ritter, a veteran of the Somme, called, quote, the monotonous mutual mass murder of the trenches, which we'll hear about tomorrow. The Marne, of course, was high drama. Winston Churchill looking back after 1914, wrote, quote, no part of the great war compares an interest with its opening. The measured silent drawing together of gigantic forces, the uncertainty of their deployment, the fickle role of chance made the first collision a drama never surpassed. Never again would battle, he wrote, be waged on so grand a scale. Never again would the slaughter be so swift or the stakes so high. What's incredible, like so much of World War I, the Marne is also enshrouded absolutely in myth. Some were simply propaganda. The Kaiser's planned entry into Nancy, astride a white charger in the white-dressed uniform of the guard's cuirassier, The 20-meter-long German flag, especially made to fly from the top of the Eiffel Tower. The 10 railroad cars loaded with medals for the fall of Paris that accompanied First Army alone. Other myths were the product of ambitious writers and mythmakers. General de Castelnau's alleged disobeying Joseph Joff's order to abandon Nancy early in the war, when Joff had in fact ordered de Castelnau to defend the city. General Ferdinand Foch's putative communique that while his position in the St. Gaughan Marshes was, quote, impossible, I attack. Pure myth. General Joseph Joff's reported command to his staff on the eve of the battle, accentuated by pounding his fist on the table, quote, gentlemen, we shall fight it out on the Marne. And equally a myth the persistent claim that the BEF saved the day by exploiting the gap between German First and Second Armies. Other myths were much more harmful and attest to the centrality of the Marne in the history of the Great War. The largest of these, of course, is that of Richard Hinch, a mere Saxon lieutenant colonel on the general staff, allegedly snatching victory from the hands of Alexander von Kluck of First Army, Karl von Bülow of Second Army, at the moment of certain triumph by ordering the retreat to two four-star generals behind the Marne. Why? This myth obscured for decades the truth behind the German retreat. A flawed command structure, an inadequate logistical system, an antiquated communications arm, and two inept field commanders. In the verdict of the German official history of the war, Bülow of Second Army had been hesitant and insecure, Kluck of First Army overly aggressive, unwilling to adhere to commands, and Chief of Staff Moltke not up to the strains of command. It concluded in volume 14, quote, In the hour of decision over the future of the German people, its leader on the field of battle completely broke down psychologically and physically. Now, I also argue that the Battle of the Marne was a close-run thing. It reconfirmed the elder Helmut von Moltke's counsel that no plan of operations survives with certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's major forces. There you see General Kluck in a rare picture without all the medals that we heard about earlier. And it also reconfirmed Clausewitz's dictum that war is the realm of uncertainty. Nothing about the Marne was preordained. Senior commanders did not at first understand the magnitude of the decision at the river. It seemed simply a temporary blip on the way to victory. The armies would be reinforced, rested, resupplied, and soon again on the way to Berlin or to Paris. And below headquarters, army, and corps commands, a million men on either side likewise had no idea in mid September what, quote, the Marne meant, except more endless marches, more baffling confusion, more bloody slaughter. The future great French historian, Marc Bloch, with French 272nd Infantry Regiment, on 9 September recalled marching down what he called a torturously winding road at night, oblivious to the fact that the great German assault had been blunted. Quote, with anger in my heart, feeling the weight of the rifle I had never fired, and hearing the faltering footsteps of our half-sleeping men echo on the ground, I could only consider myself one more among the inglorious vanquished who had never shed their blood in combat. I also argue that there are a whole lot of what-if scenarios attached to this battle. What if Germany had not violated Belgium's neutrality? Would Britain, in fact, still have entered the war? What if Helmut von Moltke had not sought a double envelopment of the enemy in alsace lorraine and in northern France? Could at least half of the 331,000 soldiers on the left wing have helped the right wing to victory? What if in panic at the Russian advance into East Prussia, Moltke had not dispatched 3rd and 9th Army Corps east? They spent... The Russian campaign in September in railroad cars going from one front to the other. Above all, what if, Schlieffen, I should have told you, Papa Joff had not been the French commander? What if he had been cashiered after he had been badly defeated in the Battle of the Frontiers in Lorraine? Joff's inscrutable, inarticulate calm, his placid, unsophisticated character, his far-sighted, unsentimental, determined leadership were among the major reasons why the French did not repeat the collapse of 1871. After the war, Ferdinand Foch paid tribute. He wrote, after the initial defeats, Joff recognized he had played the game poorly. He had broken off the campaign with every intention of resuming it as soon as he had repaired the weaknesses discovered. And only once the enemy's in- ultimate intentions to march through Belgium had been detected did he move forces brilliantly from his right wing to his left. He cashiered dozens of general officers whom he found not to be up to standard. He orchestrated an orderly withdrawal behind the Marne and Seine Rivers. He created Michel-Joseph Monterey's Army of Maneuver north of Paris, and he launched the great attack between the Horns of Paris and Verdun. Foch concludes, when the favorable moment arrived, he judiciously combined the offensive with the defensive after ordering an energetic about-face. And by a magnificently planned stroke, he dealt the invasion a mortal blow. I hope I've shown you the contrast to the physically and mentally broken younger Moltke. But still joffre knew the great gamble he had taken. He later mused, quote, I don't know who won the battle of the Marne, but if it had been lost I know who would have lost it and been blamed. What if French morale had cracked after the initial battles? Campaigns are not fought against lifeless bodies. The enemy, as Clausewitz never tired of lecturing, reacts, innovates, strikes back. Were it not for the passions of the troops, comparative figures of opposing strengths would suffice to decide the issue. Put differently, he put it sarcastically, a kind of war by algebra. What's incredible about the Marne in 1914 is that the French Poirier surprised the Germans with what General Moltke called his élan. He wrote his wife, just when it's on the point of being extinguished, it flames up mightily. A Bavarian general, Karl von Wenninger, likewise expressed his surprise at the enemy's tenacity, quote, Who would have expected of the French that after 10 days of luckless battles and bolting an open flight, they would attack for three days so desperately, end of quote. General von Kluck, who I've shown you after the war, told a Swedish journalist, the reason that transcends all others in explaining the German failure of the Marne was the extraordinary and peculiar aptitude of the French soldier to recover quickly. Cynically, he said, most soldiers will let themselves be killed where they stand. That, after all, is a given in all battle plans. Then he went on, but that men who have retreated for 10 days, that men who slept on the ground, half dead with fatigue, should have the strength to take up their rifles and attack when the bugle sounds, that is a thing upon which we never counted. That is a possibility we never even spoke about in our war academies. Now, I suggest the Marne reveals two different types of command styles. Moltke was content to remain at headquarters, far removed from the front, to give his field commanders great latitude in interpreting his general directives. He chose not to control them by way of telephones, automobiles, aircraft, or staff officers who languished at headquarters. Already in peacetime, he had let it be known, it sufficed for them simply, quote, to be informed about the intentions of the high command orally through the sending of an officer from headquarters. The war proved otherwise. A man, Morris von Linker, chief of the military cabinet, struck at the heart of the matter on 13 September, quote, it is clear that during the advance into France, the necessary tight leadership on the part of the chief of the general staff, had been totally lacking. The next day, Moltke was placed on sick leave. More than 30 commanders, generals, were relieved of their commands, but three of the top leaders were not because they were in line for future grounds. Wilhelm of Prussia, Ruprecht of Bavaria, and Albrecht of Württemberg. Not even the two most controversial commanders were sacked after the Marne. Bulow, who had shown less than boldness, in fact, was promoted field marshal and rewarded for his mediocre performance by giving command of both 1st and 7th armies. Cluck, who had disobeyed Moltke's orders, turned in southeast of Paris, commanded his army until the spring of 1915. The only commander sacked was housed in of Third Army, and that was because of a case of typhus. On the other side, if we look at Joff, we see someone who played a highly active role, as Bob Doty in his wonderful books has shown. Apart from issuing a host of special instructions and orders, and I should tell you the French official history is 144 volumes, He showered his commanders with hundreds of personal and secret memoranda, telephone calls, orders. He used his Le Mans race car driver to great advantage, constantly on the road to inspect, to order, to encourage, and where necessary, to relieve. In fact, he sacked two army, 10 corps, and 38 division commanders in the first month of the war. Some he fired because he thought they were overly pessimistic, others because he found them nervous and imprudent. But he maintained a core of loyal and aggressive army commanders. He promoted many of them because, as he said, they have faith in their success and who by mastery of themselves know how to impose their will on their subordinates and dominate events. He never regretted his sometimes unjustified firings, and after the war, he's probably the only French general who declined to engage his, quote, victims in a war of memoirs. Ironically, for me as a German military historian, the elder Moltke's strategic use of railways in 1866 and again in 1870 was absent in 1914 at the front. The brilliant railroad performance was Joff's, who used his directorate of railways and interior lines. And when he realized by 24 August he had lost the battle of the frontiers, the Germans were sweeping through Belgium, he altered the entire center of gravity of his dispositions to achieve numerical superiority at the western extremity of the front. He dissolved Paul Paw's ineffective army of Alsace, He sent it to reinforce the entrenched camp of Paris. Two days later, he dispatched four divisions to the capital. Then he orchestrated a staggering transfer of forces from Lorraine to Greater Paris. Four corps, nine corps, 15 corps, 21 corps, all of this, and of course, the famous Parisian taxis. They are lore. They are in the museum in Paris. I can tell you from the French official history, 90% got lost, broke down, ran into one another, and delivered very, very few to the front. But it was gallic. It was chivalrous. Artillery, as you well know, ruled the battlefield. German howitzers ripped men and horses alike into shreds of flesh and deposited their remains as mounds of pulp. The French 75s filled the air with shrieking shrapnel shells that exploded above the enemy drenched those below with thousands of iron balls. American journalists who accompanied both armies wrote incredibly, for four weeks, Crude, stinking, crowded ambulance wagons jostled the wounded back to barns and churches, hastily converted into field hospitals, quote, where the unfortunates lay for hours in clouds of flies drinking their blood. For days, in words one historian addressed to the soldiers of 1914, quote, you ain't nothing, Drank nothing, no one washed you, your bandages went unchanged, many of you died. The living, and this again caught American journalists, the living moved on, quote, a mass of stinking, unbathed humanity advancing through a reeking foul air of dead and dying cattle and mutilated horses to fight another battle another day. Obviously, the murderous nature of industrialized warfare changed the common soldier. Regardless of social, regional, or religious origin, they rode home of the filth and dirt, the horror and fear of their frontline experiences. Some remembered the initial euphoria, marching through fall-clad orchards, the camaraderie, and above all, the liberating of wonderful wine cellars. Then, They remembered the constant nagging hunger and thirst, the endless marches by day and night, the choking dust, the searing heat, then the cold rain and oozing mud, the burning villages, the groaning of the wounded, the deathly rattle of the dying. Just remember, First Army alone in September marched 523 kilometers on foot, fought 17 major battles and had zero days of rest. A German soldier wrote home, my opinion about the wars remained the same. It is murder and slaughter. It is still incomprehensible to me that humankind in the 20th century can commit such slaughter. A professor of art from Munich stated his feelings in more prosaic terms. I have seen so much that is grand, beautiful, monstrous, base, brutal, heinous, and gruesome, that like all the others, I am totally stupefied. To see people die hardly interrupts the enjoyment of the coffee that I have triumphantly brewed in stark filth while under artillery fire. This already in September 1914. A French poilu expressed much the same disillusion His initial, quote, beautiful, innocent joy at news of victory, victory, quickly took flight as he surveyed the battlefield. And he wrote his parents, they're a lieutenant of the 74th. They're a captain of the 129th, all in groups of three or four, sometimes singly and still in the position of firing prone red pants. These are ours. These are our brothers, this is our blood. The heroism of eighteen seventy seventy one? he said, was gone. Quote, we feel small, so small, in the face of this frightening thing, some with bloody arms, others with boots ripped to shreds by red holes. The meaning of it all escapes me. We do not know, not really, if we've done anything for use for the country. Incredibly despite the savage warfare morale held. There were no widespread refusals to obey the call-ups. Large numbers of volunteers, even if grossly exaggerated for public consumption, rushed to the recruiting depots. No major rebellions, no major strikes took place. The Marne, I argue, prefigured the resilience of European militaries and societies to endure horrendous sacrifices. To be sure, there were those at imperial headquarters who understood that the time had come in the fall of 1914 to end the great folly. Field Marshal Gottlieb von hulsen activated at the tender age of 78, Advised William II, quote, it seems to me that the moment has come which we must end the war. The plan has failed. The Kaiser sent him away. Chief of Staff Moltke's successor, Falkenhayn, in November informed the government, quote, it is impossible to beat the Allied armies to such a point where we can come to a decent peace. By continuing the war, quote, Germany runs the danger of slowly exhausting ourselves. It's from a chief of the general staff. We must make peace with Russia now. The civilian chancellor von Bethmann holweg rejected the council and sent him home. Well, to sum up, it began at the Marne It ended at Versailles in 1919. In between, and we all fudge our numbers, somewhere around 60 to 65 million young men had been mobilized, nine million possibly killed, 20 million wounded, and of course, with the 2020 vision of hindsight, the great tragedy of the Marne is that it was strategically indecisive had German 1st Army destroyed French 6th Army east of Paris, or had the French 5th Army pursued Germany's 2nd Army more energetically beyond the Marne, i.e., had there been a decisive victory, of course the world would have been spared the greater catastrophe that was to follow in 1939-45, and I thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at Amanda.Williams at Norfolk.gov.